Hello and welcome to the agronovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. In this episode of the podcast, we are with Dr. John Aberth of the University of Vermont. Dr. Aberth is an expert in medieval history and has written five books, including The First Horseman, Disease in Human History, and The Black Death, The Great Mortality of 1348 to 1350. Dr. John Aberth, welcome to the Agronovations podcast. Thank you. Uh, So let's start by uh, having you set the stage for us in the decades preceding the outbreak of the Black Death. Um, Tell us about medieval Europe at this time, what it was like, and some of the key events and trends before the outbreak that would later affect its uh, trajectory. Well, perhaps the um, this is a, a controversial subject, but uh, we don't really know what was happening exactly to population before the outbreak of the Black Death, and that's a key question because that really determines the impact of the plague. Um, an older generation of scholars thought that the population of Europe was generally in decline in the roughly 50 years before the Black Death. Beginning around 1300, population began contracting uh, because of the the so-called Malthusian principle that uh, you know a population will eventually outgrow its food supply, and then you have positive checks such as famines, plagues start to kick in. Uh, there was a great famine that occurred in the north of Europe in. Uh, beginning in 1315, uh, but it doesn't seem like this had tremendously high mortality, usually between 10 to 15 percent mortality from the Great Famine. And there's also a lot of debate about whether famine contributed to the mortality of the later outbreak of of the Black Death. Uh, Some might say that um, you know, a famine might weaken bodies and make them more susceptible. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's really no evidence that, uh, um, you know, plague, a disease like plague is really dependent on uh, whether a body has been weakened by a famine or not. In fact, if a body is starving, it may actually be good because microbes need nutrients just as much as the body do does. But, uh, you know, probably the most, um, you know, there is probably true that famine made people susceptible to other kinds of diseases, not necessarily to plague. And these diseases may have weakened people and make them more susceptible to plague. Uh, in other words, diseases brought on by famine uh, then made people more likely to die from plague. And there has been recently an excavation of uh, Smithfield Cemetery in London, and they ha- actually have found that the um, bodies that died of plague in the cemetery, most of these bodies did show signs of other diseases. Uh, these can be usually detected by lesions on bones, for example. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting questions about what was happening in Europe in the build-up to the Black Death. Uh, my own personal belief is that Europe was not European population was not necessarily contracting. I think uh, Europe's population probably recovered quite well from the Great Famine, 
and that therefore the Black Death was not necessarily inevitable. It was not necessarily part of a long-term decline that was already setting in in Europe, that in fact the Black Death came as a shock, as an unprecedented event, something that was quite unlooked for in European history at that time. The last outbreak of plague in Europe occurred uh, in the early Middle Ages, the so-called Plague of Justinian or first pandemic of plague, and this lasted from about 541, 542 to about 750 A.D. And then, for some reason, uh, plague died out in the Mediterranean and Europe, uh, perhaps because of trade that was disrupted uh, at that time in the uh, aftermath of the end of the Roman Empire. And uh, the next outbreak, the so-called second pandemic, was the Black Death that arrived in 1347-1348. Okay, so talk about the organism responsible for the plague, uh, where it came from, and a chronology of its geographic spread in this Black Death period. Well, uh, this is also a matter of some debate. Some scholars believe that the Black Death of the 14th century was not plague, and uh, there are a number of reasons for that, which uh, I don't know if I have time to go into, but, um, you know, they have generally said that, well, how could this disease spread so quickly across Europe? Uh, because plague, the modern disease of plague, is caused by a bacterium, which is called Yersinia pestis. It was named after a French a uh, microbiologist, Alexander Yersin, who, um, uh, along with Shiba Suro Kitasato, was a Japanese biologist, was also responsible for discovering uh, this bacterium. And this was in 1894 during the third pandemic of plague. There are three worldwide pandemics of plague that are said to have occurred. So anyway, uh, this bacterium was discovered in 1894. It was named Yersinia pestis after Alexander Yersin. Bacterium is a one-celled microorganism that invades the body, reproduces, and then produces certain symptoms. Uh, in the case of plague, uh, there are several ways that the bacterium can invade the body. The most uh, common and, and well-known form is bubonic plague, of course, and in this form, it was discovered in, um, <clears throat> during the third pandemic that the bacterium is spread by the bite of a flea. Uh, fleas are tiny creatures uh, that jump onto bodies and, and suck their blood. Uh, normally, the fleas that spread plague live on rats or other animals, and um, the so-called rat flea is particularly well adapted to spreading uh, the bacterium of plague. Uh, this is because when the bacterium is inside the flea's gut, it multiplies rapidly and then forms a blockage in the flea's stomach. Uh, and this, uh, when this happens, the flea, when it tries to suck up blood and feed on a blood meal, it can't hold it in. Uh, because its stomach is already full of this plague bacterium, so it has to regurgitate the blood and bacteria, which it does back into the bloodstream of the host. Uh, 
and this is how you get plague in bubonic form. <clears throat> uh, anyway, in the bubonic form, uh, the usual symptoms uh, which appear about after a week of being bitten by the flea will typically include high fever, headaches, sensitivity to light, and so forth. But the most characteristic symptom, of course, is the bubo or the swelling, which usually occurs in the lymph nodes on the groin, uh, on the, uh, under the armpit, or on the neck. And um, these swellings appear in these different places depending on where you were bitten by the flea that originally gave you plague. Uh, when you get bubonic plague, for example, you will. Um, uh, this is not always lethal. Um, usually, it has a 60 to 90 percent mortality rate. So some people can naturally recover from bubonic plague. This typically happens in the second week after the onset of symptoms, and um, usually the victims' buboes burst or erupt and release their pus. And that's uh, often taken as a sign of recovery. In fact, the, the fact that buboes are getting bigger was taken as a positive sign by plague doctors. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, you can also get plague in a pneumonic form. And that happens, that typically happens when the bacterium has invaded the lungs in a bubonic case of plague. And then the person will cough and emit bacteria in the sputum or droplets that they emit. And uh, there was a, a case of pneumonic plague outbreak during the third pandemic in China, in Manchuria, in 1910 and again in 1922. And this gave the opportunity to study the disease. It was found that patients can be infected up to three to five feet away uh, in pneumonic plague, but pneumonic plague also has a narrow range in which is infective. It's only infective when you develop the cough. And uh, this is typically, uh, you know, uh, lasts for only for about 18 hours, I think. Uh, so when you have this cough, you are infective, but until then and after then, the body is not infective. So it's a rather limited window when people can get pneumonic plague, so it's thought not to spread as much as bubonic plague. Uh, patients here usually die more rapidly. It's always fatal without antibiotics. In the case of pneumonic plague, people usually emit a bloody sputum, and they simply die from air hunger, not being able to breathe anymore. Uh, the third form, septicemic plague, is the most rare form, uh, and people are, are thought to have died in hours from this form within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, it's basically a poisoning of the blood poisoning of the uh, entire body. The whole body is, is simply overwhelmed by the plague bacteria multiplying within the body. And it's rather mysterious how this was communicated. I have my own theory, but uh, maybe I'll talk about that later. Uh, but anyway, this is a more rare form in the modern occurrences of the disease. So anyway, um, you know, some scholars argue, well, black death spread too rapidly, too fast for it to be a rat-based uh, and flea-based disease. <coughs> How could such a disease have spread so quickly? Uh, also, um, the uh, scholar Sam Cohn has made a, 
a new argument where he has compared the symptoms as described by medieval chroniclers and doctors of plague uh, with uh, those described during the third pandemic of modern plague. And he argues that the diseases are too different, uh, that they have <clears throat> different symptoms, uh, that there is also different immunity patterns. For example, you, there is no immunity to modern plague. In fact, plague patients can get plague again after they get the disease for the first time, whereas he argues in the Black Death, uh, it became successively less virulent as the Middle Ages uh, went on. So those are basically some of the arguments uh, made against Black Death being plague. My own personal opinion is that the Black Death was plague, and uh, I've done a lot of research into the plague treatises, which is one of the sources that Cohen uses to argue against Black Death being plague. But uh, basically, it's trying to compare apples and oranges, comparing medieval symptoms to modern ones. In the Middle Ages, uh, doctors didn't really make a study of symptoms of disease. In fact, uh, many doctors were advised not even to look at the patient, to keep their face away from the patient and toward the window or door and not look at them because <clears throat> obviously they were afraid of getting the disease. Uh, so they didn't really make close observation of symptoms. Many of the symptoms they describe are in fact based on older authorities, uh, other uh, writings of medical authorities and were not based necessarily on observation. So you can't really rely on medieval descriptions of symptoms as, as being a um, make or break case for whether the Black Death was plague. And uh, also, there is some new evidence that has come out. For example, uh, there was um, uh, a uh, excavation, an archaeological dig done in Montpellier in France in which they extracted dental pulp from the skulls of plague victims. And they had this dental pulp analyzed and they found the DNA of Yersinia pestis in this dental pulp, which seems to prove that this bacterium was in plague victims during the Black Death. But I think from the, you know, the, the description of the symptoms and uh, from the fact that plague uh, spreads in a very erratic pattern, uh, you know, you can't just say, well, plague spread so rapidly it couldn't, you can't just say rather that Black Death spread so rapidly it couldn't be plague. The Black Death didn't really spread like that. When it spread across Europe, it sometimes skipped whole regions altogether and then came back to them later. It sometimes delayed coming into places like into Germany until 1349 or 1350. Uh, so it was very erratic in its spread, and uh, medieval, medieval observers noticed this. They sometimes compared the spread of plague to like a chess player in how it skipped over regions. Can you, can you give us a general overview of how the plague uh, came into Europe geographically and chronologically? Well, um, usually it is thought that there was an endemic center of plague, and by endemic I mean that plague is always present in this region. It never goes away. Uh, and one of these endemic centers is, in fact, in the United States today. Uh, I interviewed a man, for example, who got plague in 2002, uh, 
Uh, this man's name is John Tall. He lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which always has about a dozen outbreaks of plague every year. Uh, so in, in some places around the world, which is still true today, there's always plague. Uh, and, uh, you know, should humans get into contact with animals that have plague, there's a possibility they can get it even today. <clears throat> One of these endemic centers, which is still endemic today, is in Central Asia, the heart of the Mongol Empire. It was thought that um, uh, from this endemic center, plague spread along the trade routes of the overland trade routes established by the Mongols uh, in the 13th century. And that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that the plague spread from this endemic center uh, westward uh, to the Crimea region. Uh, there's a famous story told by a Piacenzan chronicler, Gabriel de Moussis, of how Mongols were besieging a town called Kaffa on the north coast of the Black Sea. And that uh, the Mongols got the plague as they were besieging some Genoese Italian merchants in the city. Before they left, they decided to catapult their dead comrades into the city uh, to give the Genoese plague uh, and uh, it is thought this is one of the first uh, accounts of biological warfare in medieval history. Uh, but anyway, so um, plague somehow was communicated uh, from the Mongols to Christians um, at a point of contact, such as in the Crimea. And then from the Crimea, uh, Genoese ships, uh, we are told by chroniclers, made their way back to Italy and to the Mediterranean, to the southern Mediterranean, and uh, communicated plague to Europe. Uh, one of the earliest landfalls of plague was in the autumn of 1347 in Sicily, also just thought in southern France, such as Marseille. <clears throat> uh, so plague probably made landfall here first, and then began spreading inexorably in 1348 and later years uh, throughout Europe. Um, it is thought to have spread throughout Spain, Italy, and most of France by 1348, to have come to England by the end of 1348, by 1349 to have come to most of the British Isles and also to parts of Germany, and then by 1350 basically to all of Europe, including Eastern Europe, uh, Scandinavia, Scotland, and so on. So that's how plague is thought to have arrived and spread. Now, some might say, well, if plague started in Central Asia, why didn't it come to China? Why didn't it go to the East? We don't have a whole lot of information about what happened in China. <clears throat> and partly this is because the Mongol Empire was coming to an end in China at this time. And the China, uh, Mongols, the Mongol Empire was succeeded by the Min Dynasty in 1368. So um, we we may not have the records that we have in Europe. Uh, there are some annals, some Chinese annals that do survive that show that local epidemics were um, occurring in the 1330s and 1340s in China, which would indicate that a, you know disease had come from. Uh, an endemic center close by. But anyway, you know, the best guess we could make is that sometime in the 1330s, plague uh, 
uh, erupted out of its endemic center in, in Central Asia and began spreading east and west. Tell us about the impact plague had on communities as it hit them. Well, <clears throat> you know, this might uh, vary depending on <clears throat> what communities were struck, but uh, overall, uh, the average mortality, I would argue, was 50% throughout Europe from the Black Death. So that's a pretty incredible mortality. And there's a, uh, by now, there is a lot of um, mortality st statistics that are available from different countries in Europe. I have just done a, completed a survey of this for my second edition of From the Brink of the Apocalypse. So um, there's also another book, uh, a recent book by a um, Scandinavian scholar, Ole Benedictau, uh, called The Black Death. He argues for an even higher average mortality of 60% overall. Um, I think that might be a little high, but 50% still is pretty incredible. You think, if you think about it, every other person you see will be gone, will die. Um, you know, that's a, a pretty dramatic effect on any community or society. And it's bound to have all kinds of implications, social impacts, economic effects, um, you know, also religious uh, and psychological effects, of course. Um, so, you know, this communities might respond in different ways to that uh, crisis or to that uh, catastrophe. But um, overall, my argument is that Europe actually recovered quite well from the Black Death. If you think about it, uh, Europe did not really decline after the Black Death because what happened after the Black Death? You actually had the Renaissance occurring uh, at this time between about 1350 to 1550. So there was actually a renewal, a recovery from the Black Death. I did want to ask you, about uh, some of the things that were going on as the Black Death uh, ran through Europe. Uh, there was this movement called the Flagellates. Uh, who were they, and what do they tell us about the impact of uh, the tragedy on medieval society? Well, the, the Flagellates, um, there's a lot of controversy about them, too, but um, uh, I've just finished uh, you know, writing a history about them. Uh, flagellants got their name from the whips that they used, the flagella, which were basically a, a whip containing about three or four leather tongs, which were knotted at the end with uh, metal spikes driven through it. In one account, it's pretty clear that the ends of these spikes were turned upwards so that when they whipped themselves, uh, the chronicler says they made a rain of four-cornered marks. And another chronicler, Heinrich of Hereford, says that sometimes they whipped themselves so hard, the iron spikes became embedded in the flesh, and it took two pulls or two jerks of the whip to pull, pull them out. So these were quite dramatic ceremonies. Usually uh, this movement is thought to have started in Austria or in the East around 1348, around the autumn of 1348, and then to have progressed from there through, through uh, Germany and eventually coming to uh, Strasbourg uh, in June or July of 1349 
and then uh, finally came to Flanders in the Low Countries, what is now Belgium and Holland, uh, in around August uh, 1349. They did cross the channel to London, but apparently they didn't get a good reception in uh, end of 1349 or 1350. And after that, the flagellant movement died out. But basically what it was was that a group of people, typically several hundred strong, uh, as described by the chronicles, would come to town. They would be singing hymns or specially composed songs. They would have a special habit or uniform. This consisted usually of a black cap or hood with a, a black mantle on which were sewn red crosses in front and behind. They'd also be carrying candles and crosses. Uh, they were also known as the Crucifarians or cross bearers because that's how they saw themselves. They saw themselves as reenacting the passion of Jesus Christ. When Christ was led to his crucifixion, he was, of course, whipped along the way. And the flagellants were said to perform their penance for 33 and a half days, corresponding to the number of years in which traditionally Christ is said to have walked the earth. So these were consciously, con these men were con consciously uh, following in the footsteps of Christ as a way of perhaps appeasing God's wrath or anger and taking away the plague. Now, usually in popular representations of the flagellants, such as you'll see in Ingemar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, the flagellants are portrayed as a doom and gloom kind of group. They come, they come to town, they tell everyone they're going to die, uh, everyone needs to be sorry for their sins. In actuality, based on chronicler accounts, flagellants were extremely popular. Uh, people came running to see them and were fascinated by their ceremonies. Uh, in one case, uh, an uh, observer says that he saw old women dipping rags in the blood that was flowing down the backs of the flagellants and dabbing their eyes with it as a kind of holy relic. Uh, a preacher in Tournai in Flanders uh, compared the flagellants, he called them the Red Knights, he compared their blood to the blood of Jesus Christ and said it was just as, as worthy as, as Christ, which was... Um, you know, upset a lot of churchmen. But anyway, um, you know, the, the, a big part of the flagellant movement was the fact that they were believed to be able to ward off or stop the plague. Uh, now, there's a question of timing. When did the flagellants come to town? Was it before the plague or was it after the plague? And um, the evidence that I have seen leads me to believe that usually flagellants came to town uh, around the same time as, as the plague was in town or shortly afterwards. Therefore, they were coming to town when the, the plague had arrived. People were obviously worried about the disease. Here were these people who promised to take away the, the disease, take, take the disease away by their extraordinary penance, a penance that was so extreme that God would be so moved to lift the plague. And so they provided very real uh, comfort and, um, you know, a promise to these people. And that partly explains why they were so popular. The question, of course, is, <laughs> flagellants would usually stay for quite some time. You know, in Flanders, for example, the flagellants come in August, and they keep coming from various towns all the way up until February. 
1370, when they're finally suppressed, what happened when the plague kept staying and people kept dying? You know, eventually you would think uh, the flagellants would not be popular anymore, and that seems to be exactly what happened. Uh, in fact, um, uh, flagellants would often, um, in Flanders at least, were said to uh, help people bury dead bodies. And there was a possibility that uh, flagellants may have been more susceptible to, to play because as part of the regulations, they couldn't stay in one house every night. They had to accept hospitality from a different person every night of their pilgrimage. That would mean they would have great exposure to different houses where there might be an infestation of bubonic plague bearing rats or fleas. Uh, so, uh, but the flagellants had a lot of detractors at that, at that time, and not all their criticisms were borne out. An excellent example of this is a preacher by the name of, by the name of Jean, Jean de Faillite preached a sermon before the Pope in October of 1349. And in this sermon, he said the flagellants were also instigating pogroms against the Jews. But there's absolutely no evidence that flagellants ever attacked Jews. In fact, for example, at Strasbourg, which had the largest pogrom in Europe at the time of the Black Death, flagellants came in July, June or July, several months after the Jewish pogrom occurred in February, in the previous February. So uh, some of the detractors of the flagellants at the time were not really fair to the flagellants. They sort of had gotten a bad rap uh, from both medieval observers and modern portrayals. Now, uh, you had just <laughs> mentioned uh, pogroms against the Jews. Uh, right. Scapegoating was also a big part of the response to what was going on. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Well, you know, the first point to make is that it was not just Jews who were accused of poisoning wells during the Black Death. In fact, one of the first trials to occur on a well poisoning charge during the Black Death occurred in April 1348 in Toulon in the south of France, which was quite close to ports such as Marseille when the Black Death made early landfall in, uh, at the end of 1347. Uh, so um, in, in that trial, we actually know what happened because the vicar of Toulon wrote a letter about it to the sworn men of Girona in, in Catalonia in Spain. Uh, in that trial, those who were accused were said to be poor men and beggars or vagabonds. They were not Jews. Uh, so uh, these these poor men were said to be uh, carrying bags of poison, which they dumped in wells, springs, and in food. Um, so that was, you know, one of the first accusations uh, that people were poisoning each other uh, to give them the plague. Now, as a matter of fact, the idea of poison was a, you know, was a pretty accepted one among a certain group of doctors during the Black Death. Uh, for example, a famous Italian physician, Gentile de Feligno, uh, wrote a plague treatise in which he argued that plague was primarily a poison inside the body. It didn't necessarily corrupt the humors, as was traditional medical theory at the time, but it acted like a poison. The best way to counteract that was to take antidotes against that poison. So there was already this concept, this medical concept, that plague acted like a poison, 
And there were, in fact, some doctors, such as Alfonso de Cordoba, who wrote a treatise from Montpellier in France in 1349, who argued that the main cause of plague was, in fact, not God's anger or the conjunction of the planets, a higher cause, but actually a human one, the human agency of poisoning. And he gave an elaborate description of how this could occur. You brew the poison in a glass amphora, then you break it over some stones, and you allow winds to take it to the city you wish to infect. So there already was this idea of poison. Uh, what happened was that uh, apparently there was this belief that emerged that some people were actually poisoning others to give them the plague. Now, the, uh, the Jews eventually were uh, associated with uh, poison, plague, poison. Uh, that seems to have really emerged um, a little later in the autumn of 1348. There was a uh, famous group of trials in the Savoy in which about 11 Jews were tortured and uh, forced to confess that they received poison from a rabbi in Toledo in Spain or from other Jews and were putting them in wells. One of these wells, ironically, was Evian Le Bain, which is now famous for its spring water. And copies of this trial were then circulated to other towns, such as to Strasbourg, which had the largest pogrom against the Jews. About 2,000 Jews were burnt over the case of six days at Strasbourg, beginning on Valentine's Day, February 14th of 1349. And this poison accusation or charge sort of spread almost like the plague from town to town, by word of mouth, you see. So uh, that's how other Jewish communities and other towns got caught up in this poison accusation. Uh, what is interesting is what happened after the Jews were killed. For example, at Strasbourg, I mentioned already, Jews were killed in February. Uh, the plague did not come to Strasbourg until July uh, 1349, later that year when the flagellants also came to town. What would the citizens have thought when they had killed their Jews because they believed Jews would poison them to give them the plague, and then they got plague anyway? You can imagine, perhaps, that you know people had a lot of guilt about killing the Jews. Jews were uh, natural scapegoats in the Middle Ages because they were believed to be deicides or... Uh, to be partly responsible for Christ's crucifixion, and therefore the natural enemies of Christians. But also there was a long Christian tradition dating back to St. Augustine that said that Jews needed to be preserved and protected as witnesses to the triumph of Christianity at the end of days, at the apocalypse. So uh, it's interesting to think what was the dynamic, what was happening in these communities when they learned, oh, well, it wasn't the Jews after all plague is still upon us, even though we've killed all our Jews. Uh, a, a German writer, Conrad of Megenberg, who was uh, famous as a, as a writer on science matters in the Middle Ages, he wrote a work called The Book of Nature, um, in which he talks about various natural phenomena. He actually puts forward this argument, arguing that Jews couldn't have been uh, poisoning people during the Black Death, uh, because even after they 
block the wells or stop drinking water from the wells. And even after they killed all the Jews, plague still killed uh, everyone anyway. Uh, there were other defenders of the Jews. The Pope, for example, issued a bull uh, trying to protect the Jews, and in that bull, he argued uh, that um, you know the Jews couldn't be poisoners because they were dying in equal number to Christians, and so on. The problem is, though, that uh, neither Megenberg nor Clement really shut the door on Jewish pogroms. Megenberg, for example also believe that plague could be spread by poison, by a poisonous vapor, which he believed was released by earthquakes. Pope Clement, uh, in his bull, at the end of his bull, allowed for pogroms to occur if they were done in a legal fashion. He was not saying that they, no one could uh, prosecute Jews if they believed them to be a poisoner, uh, as long as it was done legally. So the problem was that um, they didn't really get at the root of the problem of scapegoating. Uh, now there's a, you know, an interesting question about Spain. This is the topic of David Nuremberg's famous study uh, of um, uh, violence, uh, violence in, in society, uh, communities of violence, this book is called. Uh, he argues that in Spain there was no poisoning, that, in other words, Jews were attacked and uh, pogroms in Catalonia in Spain because uh, the Christians felt guilty about tolerating their Jews, that this is one of the sins for which they were being punished by God in the form of the plague. I personally don't really buy Nuremberg's argument that violence, uh, endemic violence, um, you know, necessitated pogroms during the Black Death. Um, you know, I think, in fact, that poisoning probably played a role and the pogroms in Spain as well. Uh, I would also argue that um, the pogroms against the Jews were not really about the Jews, per se. Uh, of course, the Jews being viewed as the enemies of Christianity made them likely suspects of the poisoning charge, but the poisoning charge really originated in medical concepts, in fact, in quite rational scientific concepts. Uh, as I've mentioned, you know, plague doctors already believed that plague could act naturally act like a poison and could be spread like a poison even without the human agency of the Jews. So in a sense, uh, what this means then is that the poisoning charged outlived the Jewish pogroms during the Black Death. What happens later? Well, we have, um, you know, the witch hunt that occurs towards the end of the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. And in the early modern period, for example, uh, we have the accusation against plague spreaders in Geneva during the 16th century and in Milan, the famous uh, witch panic against plague spreaders in Milan in 1630. Uh, and in fact, if you go all the way up to modern history, to the Holocaust, uh, to the terrible tragedy uh, that happened in Nazi Germany, you can see the influence of the poisoning charge even here. Uh, you know, Adolf Hitler talks about racially poisoning Jews in Mein Kampf. There's a famous film, a Nazi propaganda film called Der Abiga Judah, or The Eternal Jew, which shows rats and talks about how the Jews spread like rats, bringing, quote, diseases and plagues in their wake. 
so you you know this poisoning charge was eventually to have its very terrible fulfillment i think in the holocaust uh so this is uh, something that had a life to it even if jews were no longer scapegoated for the plague after the first outbreak of the black death Let's talk a little bit about uh, policy-level responses to the tragedy. Naturally, uh, there, was, there was not the type of policy apparatus that we see today, uh, but there were still governments and uh, church authorities and the like. Um, how did these policy-level responses, both positive and negative, affect the outcome, outcomes and consequences? Well, uh, one such reaction, as I mentioned, was uh, eventually, you know, uh, you know, later in the Middle Ages, health boards are set up. Uh, typically, these were set up in Italian towns, which were the most progressive in this regard, in which they tried to isolate the contacts of plague. And what is interesting, uh, this is uh, based on a study by Anne Carmichael, uh, many of these regulations were directed against the poor. That plague usually affected the poor, and therefore the poor had to be isolated during the plague. So uh, these regulations very often fell uh, <clears throat> disproportionately upon the poor of society. Uh, so these regulations included quarantine. Uh, later we have cleaners would come into a house after a plague occurred in the house and try to clean out the plague, uh, plague contagion rather. <clears throat> uh, they also might try to fumigate the house by lighting fires in the house to try to smoke out uh, not fleas but what was believed to be bad air <laughs> and um, uh, also uh, they would try to limit contacts of people coming into or leaving town and uh, these date from the first outbreak of the disease um, so some towns took that approach but of course the question is how effective were they how effective could they make these regulations? And in fact, some of these re regulations may have been counterproductive. For example, in Geneva, during the 16th century, um, they ordered that all dogs and cats be killed because it was believed that they were transmitting the plague. But in actual fact, of course, they may have helped keep down the rat population in the city, which was uh, helping to spread bubonic plague. Uh, other responses... Uh, another typical response that occurred throughout Europe in the wake of the first outbreak of the Black Death uh, was to pass labor laws or uh, labor regulations. <clears throat> this was passed in England in 1349 and 1351. It was passed in Siena and other towns in Italy uh, beginning in 1348 and 1349. Uh, so <clears throat> throughout Europe, you had this attempt to try to economically regulate, to regulate the economy in the wake of the Black Death. And that's, of course, the reason for that is with this incredibly heavy mortality, there was a shortage of labor <coughs> on most manors throughout, the, throughout Europe. And this posed a problem for lords and propertied interests in Europe. You know, how are they going to maintain their labor force that is working their manors and growing their crops and allowing them to run their manor. Uh, this became a problem because now uh, labor was in demand, uh, whereas before the plague there is believed to have been an excess of labor 
now there's a, a suddenly a shortage of labor. So workers could demand higher wages for their labor if they were working by the day. Uh, they, uh, if they were unfree serfs, they might demand better uh, conditions of their servitude. They might demand even their freedom, perhaps, or they might demand less onerous conditions, such as not having to work so many days of the week on the Lord's land. They might ask for lower, you know, for to rent land instead of having to uh, uh, simply work it uh, by custom and so on. Uh, so this threatened to change the whole manorial economy that had been the basis uh, for the economy of Europe throughout the Middle Ages. So this posed a serious threat. So these governments tried to literally turn back the clock to before the Black Death and to fix wages <coughs> and fix the price of goods to the level they had been before the plague. <clears throat> uh, Siena also, in addition to this, tried to offer inducements to encourage workers from outside Siena to come and work. They, for example, they gave tax breaks. Uh, they promised to not tax these newcomers for a period of years to encourage them to come in. Uh, so various expedients were tried, and this had, you know, this had uh, mixed success depending on where you're talking about in Europe. In England, for example, we, of course, had the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, and um, in this revolt, Watt Tyler demanded that all men pay four pence per acre of land, which would, in essence, free all serfs in England and make them renters. And this situation de facto happened, it seems, in England by the 15th century. In other places, though, in Spain, for example, uh, Paul Friedman has found that um, in Spain, uh, lords were much more able to impose uh, their, their older conditions, the past conditions on serfs, and serfs had a much harder time of getting manumission or getting their freedom. So it really depends on what part of Europe you're talking about in terms of, of how successful uh, governments were in being able to maintain the status quo. But in any case, wherever they were, they were uh, plague really posed a challenge in terms of of uh, trying to keep things the same or the way they were. Now, I, I must admit, as I was preparing for this uh, interview, I was a little bit reluctant and somewhat torn about it. This is a pretty grim topic, and it's uh, hard for us to look back on it. How do people respond to your research? Well, um, you know, very often, uh, you know, if I, if I say I'm a specialist on the Black Death or uh, I research plague, um, you know, they may think, oh, what a horrible disease, and, uh, you know, it may conjure up all kinds of notions of, <coughs> of um, you know, uh, uh, death, of course, and, um, you know, uh, decline of society. And this really goes back to Johann Huizinga's classic work, The Waning of the Middle Ages, although he doesn't mention plague, he uh, put forward the idea that the later Middle Ages around this time was a time of, of a decline in society, and, and I really disagree with that. I mean, to borrow a phrase from Monty Python, which uh, Life of Brian, the, the end with a song that says, always look on the bright side of death, 
Uh, I think there is a kind of silver lining. This is a, a phrase that has been misused, but there is a silver lining to plague, uh, not always, but in some aspects, uh, European society actually became better off because of the Black Death, that there was actually, uh, you know, some hope and recovery that took place after the Black Death. Uh, one example of this may be in what Sam Cohn calls the cult of remembrance that emerged after the plague. Uh, one of the social effects, the most dramatic social effect of the plague that you read of in Chronicle after Chronicle is of people being abandoned during the plague. Uh, Boccaccio has a famous phrase where he says, you know, brothers abandon brothers, sisters abandon sisters, and even parents abandon their own children. Uh, that people were deathly afraid of dying alone during the, pl during the plague. And this is especially true of plague because plague was seen as a very horrible disease. Right down through the end of the Middle Ages, it was, it was very uh, painful to disease to die from. It was also seen as a potentially very sudden disease. You could die very quickly from the disease in three or four days, for example. And therefore, there was always the fear that, am I going to, be, am I going to die alone? Well, I had the chance to repent my sins, to make confession, to prepare my soul for the afterlife. I think the uh, belief, medieval belief in, in the afterlife was one of the key things that allowed people to face death in the Middle Ages. But in the case of plague, there's also perhaps an anxiety about <clears throat> uh, having the time to prepare for the afterlife, afterlife in the case of plague. So we get this cult of remembrance where people want to be remembered and perhaps this facilitated, uh, you know, the uh, rise of individualism in the Renaissance, to borrow Burkhardt's theme uh, of uh, portraying people as individuals in individual portraits and so on. And you can sort of trace that in wills that came out of the Black Death. <clears throat> uh, in other respects, there was not a silver lining to plague. You know, one of the misconceptions is that perhaps plague by reducing the population of society necessitated technological advances like the printing press. Seems pretty clear that the printing press emerged in the 15th century because there was a demand for it, not necessarily because uh, there was a shortage of labor. Also, another misconception uh, that has recently been put out there by Sam Cohen is that plague uh, led to a change in medicine or a uh, you know, to a, a change of attitude among doctors in which doctors took a more practical approach to medicine, concentrating on things like quarantine and sanitation instead of uh, concentrating on causes of the disease like in the heavens or in the stars. Uh, my own research on plague treatises has led me to the conclusion that basically medicine stayed pretty much the same throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, during the Black Death, um, that in fact, uh, doctors were pretty conservative. They mainly fell back on what they knew. This is a really unprecedented disease. Some doctors pointed out that the ancients never, <clears throat> never had to face a disease like theirs, yet at the same time, they continued to rely on the theory of the ancients <clears throat> because that is what they believed worked. One of the things they did 
typical response of a doctor in the Middle Ages uh, to plague was to bleed the patient. And in fact, what doctors did is to do more of the same and do it more intensely. They believed that in order to cure plague, you had to bleed the patient as soon as possible and to bleed in large amounts. Uh, one Morse physician I've, I've, uh, I've used in his treatise, he says that some patients gave eight pounds of blood. That would be almost equivalent to the entire blood in the human body. And it seems that patients, over the course of the months of the disease, when the disease was present, might have given incredible amounts of blood uh, from their body. As I said, I, I did have some misgivings about uh, the interview and the, and the topic, but I also feel that there are some important things for us to learn, and uh, this is kind of where I've been wanting to go uh, with the interview. Uh, this was a great tragedy, obviously. I think it would also be equally tragic if we failed to learn anything from it. Uh, many of us do feel that we're now in a time of great transition and change, um, certainly not trying to equate our current situation with that of the Black Death of medieval Europe, but I do think yeah. there's some important lessons that we can take away from this. Um, what do you think uh, could have better prepared people for such an event in the, in the Middle Ages? Well, one of the things that I do when I teach a course on the Black Death, at the start of the course, I ask my students uh, how many of them believe in the afterlife. And... Um, Typically, I'll get maybe, uh, you know, one or two or a few students raising their hands that they believe in the afterlife. Most of the students either don't know or don't believe in anything after death. So I do that to raise the point that um, in the Middle Ages, obviously, people were at a technological or a scientific disadvantage compared to modern times. They, did, they didn't have antibiotics to cure disease. They didn't know about microbes or bacteria or viruses. Uh, they didn't know really, uh, truly how disease was spread and therefore could protect or cure it. But on the other hand, I would argue that in the Middle Ages, people had a psychological advantage over us, that in a sense, they were psychologically inoculated against plague but by, by their belief that there would be something after death. Uh, that death was not the end. And this is, um, you can't underestimate how powerful an, an idea this is. Now, if you look at modern times, uh, our modern plagues, whether you're talking about AIDS or you're talking about avian flu or drug-resistant TB or whatever uh, present, uh, you know, challenge or terror is out there, um, you know, these diseases... Are, are, you know, we have a bunch of diseases that are now incurable, which is a rather new situation for us. I mean, up until quite recently, uh, humans could be, could congratulate themselves for, you know, winning the war against disease. You know, for example, smallpox was eradicated from the world in the 1970s, uh, largely through the efforts of the World Health Organization. Polio was conquered. In the, in the 1950s. And there was, a, you know, example after example of how uh, through the wonders of modern technology, modern medicines, modern drugs, 
uh, you know, humans were winning the war against disease, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore because of all these new diseases that I've mentioned that are, at the present time, incurable. We still don't have a vaccine or a cure for AIDS, for example. We can treat it, and we can prolong people's lives, but we can't cure them. Uh, so, the, you know, the question is, uh, how is modern society, modern society to respond to these new challenges of incurable diseases? And I think this is where the lesson uh, of the Black Death during the Middle Ages can come in, into play. That, uh, you know, look at this society, which, you know, we typically, you know, in the popular mind look upon as backward, as literally medieval, uh, as, uh, you know, so much uh, less progressive than our own, and yet they were able to not only to survive, but to reinvent themselves, recover, renew themselves in the Renaissance. And I think this is a powerful lesson, powerful lesson of, of hope and promise in the human condition. So what can that, what does that tell us about how we can better organize our lives and our communities for unexpected events like this? Well, I think when you're talking about uh, incurable diseases, such as drug-resistant TB is a good example, or avian flu, uh, the best response we can have is to go back what they did during the Middle Ages, to actually uh, adopt quarantine measures and sanitation measures, disinfection, isolation, uh, to adopt these same measures, but hopefully to do it in a much more efficient, much more comprehensive way so that we do not allow these diseased, diseases to become worldwide pandemics. I think that is perhaps the best, most practical response that we have is to fall back on, uh, on trying to isolate uh, contacts. And, of course, we, we now have a lot of the knowledge that enables us to uh, uh, conduct these responses much more effectively. But there is also the human factor that we should not forget. Uh, you know, we also, in my course, talk about the third pandemic of plague. And, and during the third pandemic of plague, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, there was a w awareness for the first time that plague was spread by bacterium. And therefore, there was a, a, you know, a, a new sense of emphasis and urgency on isolation, segregation of contacts, of trying to limit the spread of the disease. But you also have to keep into account uh, local customs and traditions and the feelings, simple human feelings of people. You know, you would have British soldiers come into Native Indians' houses and take away contacts, even if they were children, take them away from their parents to hospitals and then segregate uh, families from each other. You know, that's not really a practical response in a, any kind of epidemic. You have to ask yourself the question, are those measures uh, to try to prevent an outbreak of disease, are they worth the human cost? And that's basically the question that we have to ask ourselves, should God forbid uh, there be another uh, pandemic uh, like plague or, or like some other disease in the past. You have to weigh the, 
you know, the benefits versus the cost, uh, as you do with almost any other policy. Okay, Dr. John Eberth of the University of Vermont, I'd like to thank you very much for your time, uh, for all your insight on this interesting topic, and um, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. There was a final question in my interview with Dr. John Aberth that I did not get a chance to ask him as we started to run out of time. Um, and I did have a chance to correspond with him via email and ask that question. And so I'm going to read the question and answer to you here uh, now. The question was, based on your research, how do you believe people can prepare themselves for unexpected events and crises in psychological and spiritual ways? Dr. Aberth's response was, I don't think there is an easy answer to this question, as people today have so many different spiritual beliefs and psychological makeups, as opposed to a universal faith that was assumed for the vast majority of the population of Europe during the Black Death. However, as I indicated during our interview, I think people can take quite a lot of hope and comfort away from the medieval experience of the Black Death, in that despite this being a relatively primitive society, and despite the incredible mortality for the first outbreak of the disease in 1348, this society did survive and go on to achieve one, some of the great things during the Renaissance and early modern period. Otherwise, I think perhaps we should take the advice of plague doctors during the Middle Ages, who advised their patients to follow the sixth non-natural of their plague regimen, known as accidents of the soul, which was to avoid sadness, anxiety, anger, and other volatile emotions, and to think happy thoughts, and maintain a calm, placid frame of mind by engaging in pleasant conversation, dancing, singing, and reading history, but not about the Black Death. Well, thank you, John Aberth. Those are wise words, and I think we would all be better off to take them into account in our lives, uh, whether we are in crisis or not. Now, many of you may be thinking, this was a bit of an odd topic for a podcast that's dedicated to agriculture, and uh, I would concur with that to some extent. I also think that uh, this topic and all of the issues that Dr. Aberth brought up during the course of the interview are issues and things that are pressing for our time as well. The issues of racism, response to unexpected crises, our relationship with uh, microbiological organisms, bacteria, namely in the case of the Black Death, and finally, how we can be better prepared to deal with unexpected events that are surely happening and natural to happen in the course of our lifetimes, and especially it seems so during this particular time in history. So take it for what it is. Uh, we will be continuing with issues related in agriculture in our following episodes. This is the Agro-Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Thanks so much for listening. Saludos. <laughs>